As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on this episode of The Box of Oddities, the mysterious butterfly people of Joplin, Missouri. And the very creative ways we've shamed people as punishment. The Box of Oddities. If it's weird, we talk about it. The world is full of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. One of the things that I love doing with you is uh, listening to music while we're cooking mm. in the kitchen. And last night we had uh, the uh, the lady of the house, uh, the Echo, we won't say her name, um, <laughs> <laughs> playing some of our favorite songs. And something that came up by random chance was We're In This Together by Nine Inch Nails, which is one of the songs that usually leads into our live performances. It's actually the the song before our intro. Right. And it was um it was weird. Like I had a visceral reaction to hearing it. Oh, I did too. I uh, got goosebumps. Right about the point where our theme music would start mm -hmm. normally. We were getting close to that in, in the Nine Inch Nail song, and my butthole started to pucker. <laughs> I got that, oh my God, we're about to go on stage feeling. I miss it so much. Yeah, I miss that butt pucker. <laughs> We've talked about this quite a bit, about getting back out on the road again, and uh, it seems to me like that really just put an exclamation point yeah. on it for me. Yeah. As soon as we get settled in Ecuador, we'll plan a U.S. tour, or at least a show. Okay. It is funny how one's body reacts to that sort of thing. Yeah. I had that familiar feeling of excitement and wanting to throw up at the same time. <laughs> Speaking of which, do you have a story to tell me? Throwing up makes, <laughs> makes you think of my stories? Well, yes, in fact, I do. Joplin, Missouri, a town that's no stranger to resilience. In 2011, Joplin was hit by a calamity that shook its foundations, but like a phoenix rising, an incredible legend emerged from the wreckage. Oh my gosh. A legend filled with wonder, hope, and butterflies. Aww. Not the kind you see flitting about your garden flowers. Uh, no, these were a kind of a different sort of butterflies. They were beings of light in the midst of darkness, symbols of hope amidst destruction. I'm talking about the now famous... Butterfly people of Joplin. I don't know who these people are. Is this related to the tornado? Because that's the only thing. That... Yes. Oh, okay. Like when you say Joplin, Missouri, that's the first thing that comes to mind is that that rugged tornado. 
Yeah, it was it was rough back in 2011. I've never thought about butterflies during a tornado before. Oh no. <laughs> I wonder if there's some sort of system that we could create so that butterflies have a safe place to go, like a panic room, yeah, a, but for butterflies. A butterfly panic room. Yeah. I want to thank Mal's for sending an email, said Kat and JG, you briefly brought up Mothman again recently, and it made me think of the butterfly people of Joplin, Missouri. Could they be related? What? Like, like big bug cousins? It's interesting that they were both seen in the face of disasters, and it would be a fun journey to find out more about this phenomenon. And then in parentheses, they wrote, yes, I did it in my head. If you know, you know, right? Um, I assumed you meant like butterflies. Like people who had butterflies, like... No, no, no. <sighs> what? <laughs> well, let's go back to that fateful day. Picture this, Joplin, Missouri. It's in the heart of the Midwest, nestled right next to the edge of the Ozark Mountain region. A.K.A. Tornado Alley. It's an area famed for its crystal blue springs, scenic beauty, and charming small town feel. I'm on a Zillow Joplin, Missouri right now. In 2011, Joplin was home to about 50,000 people, folks who knew each other by name. They shared cookouts and Sunday services. They went to high school football games together, 4th of July parades. You know, what you would expect in a city the size of Joplin. It was your quintessential American town, where people worked hard, they cared for their neighbors, and children played in the streets until the porch lights came on. I kind of want to move there now. Oh, that's, I'm looking at houses. Oh, look at this one. Oh, that's cute. You know I love a brick home. But things got very dark, figuratively and literally, oh. on May 22nd of 2011. The sky turned an eerie green, a chilling quiet fell over the land, and then it arrived. It was over a half mile wide oh. with winds exceeding. Remember Hurricane Ian? We lived through that yeah. Uh, yeah. last fall. <laughs> yeah, I remember and it. it. And the winds got up to about 70, 75 miles per hour. And the, and the entire apartment building, the walls were vibrating. Yeah. Thinking, oh my God, I'm glad this wasn't more than that. Yeah, it was so intense. This tornado was a half mile wide and the winds exceeded 200 miles per <gasps> hour. It roared through Joplin like a freight train, leaving devastation in its wake. Oh my gosh. In a span of just minutes, neighborhoods were obliterated, reduced to unrecognizable heaps of rubble, schools, hospitals, businesses. No structure was immune to this tornado. It was so big and powerful. Vehicles were tossed about like toys. Trees were uprooted and strewn about. Now, I mentioned the EF5 tornado. Mm -hmm. And that means it was a titan. For those who are unfamiliar with the EF scale. A titan? E big. Oh, okay. I thought maybe that was like code for tornado. It's code for big ass tornado. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the EF scale, EF5 is the apex, the top of the tornado food chain, if you will. Oh. We're talking about wind speeds over 200 miles per hour. Okay, before you go any further, I have to let you know I found four homes in Joplin that <laughs> I would like to have. Thank okay. you. All right, note them. We'll go back and look after we're done. Look at this one, though. Oh, that's cute. Look at that double-layer porch. So with wind speeds over 200 miles per hour, the sky turned into a monstrous swirling vortex, and homes were reduced to debris, vehicles tossed about like leaves in the wind, the roaring gusts, the thunderous upheaval. It was nature's own soundtrack of terror. When the tornado had moved on, it left a scarred path of destruction 22 miles long wow. and a half mile wide. Joplin looked like an alien terrain after that. 
But the spirit of Joplin could not be doused. Moments after the storm, while the dust was still in the air and the sirens were still howling, people of Joplin sprang into action. Na neighbors dug through debris to free their trapped friends. Mm -hmm. Strangers shared their homes with those who lost everything. Volunteers flooded in to provide food and water and medical aid. And they do say disasters have a way of revealing character. And on that day, Joplin's character shone very brightly. It reminds me of the ice storm of uh, 98. We didn't see any kind of devastation like these folks had to deal with. But we were without power for up to three weeks. My it, mom was out of power for three months. For three months. And it was freezing cold, the middle of the winter. And people just really banded together and supported each other. There was a kind of like a communal feeling that you don't often see. It was really amazing. People were opening their homes to others to take showers and handing out casseroles. And if those that got their power back first, which were those in Townsite, I mm. remember in Bucksport, it was Townsite got their power back first. Right. And just such an incredible community effort to make sure that the rest of the town was taken care of. It's the closest that I can think of that I've experienced to what I've found about this Joplin disaster. Yeah. You know, what wasn't nice, though, is that my principal insisted that even though I lost my persuasive essay in when my computer crashed mm -hmm. and died mm -hmm. during the ice storm, um, and then it was part of a portfolio uh, thing, and so I didn't graduate with the rest of my class. And it was all the ice storm's fault. It was the ice storm's fault. I had already turned in a first draft. You know I did the work. <laughs> Coming in a little hot there, aren't we? <laughs> so in the wake of the tornado's destruction, Joplin picked up the pieces and moved on. But an extraordinary thing began to emerge, a narrative from uh, the most innocent of sources, the town's children. Amidst the stories of survival and loss, kids started speaking of ethereal, luminous beings, beings with wings, not feathers, but delicate, vibrant wings like those of a butterfly. Oh, maybe the tornado kicked up some sort of like ergot kind of situation? <laughs> you think it was ergot? These were the first accounts that came forward about the butterfly people. No, I don't know. And these were not apparitions lurking in the periphery. Um, these were beings that were standing guard amidst the wind and the flying debris, according to these children. Uh, it's interesting that it was all children that saw them, or at least as far as the reports I found determined. The descriptions were various, but they were also fascinatingly consistent. These beings that the children saw, they were all described this way. They were tall, sometimes larger than an average person, with uh, wings that seemed to shimmer in the wind. They had a calming, protective presence that stood as really a, a stark contrast to the raging storm all about them. But these butterfly people weren't just watchers. They weren't just observers of the storm and the situation. They were silent heroes, according to the children's accounts. Kids spoke of these beings shielding them from debris, guiding them to safety, or simply standing guard over them. Kind of like the, uh, the third man syndrome thing that you've talked about. Yes, very. Syndrome, third man? Third man factor yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that coming up. Okay. Here's one account from a, a young boy. He was about eight. And amidst the rubble of his home, he insisted that there was a butterfly person who protected him from the flying debris. He said every time something flew toward him, this butterfly person would deflect it or move it in a different direction. 
There's another story of a little girl who spoke of a butterfly lady who, while the storm was raging, held her close and whispered soothing words as the storm blew all about them. Mm. And there was another little boy who was in a car with his father during the tornado. And he said that a butterfly person covered him and protected him during the storm. Another account, this was reported by a mother who said her young daughter claims to have seen butterfly people outside her window during the storm. Scratching on the window. Let the right one in. So let's, you know, let's let's take a moment and step back from the individual accounts. Consider the larger significance of these stories. Um, it could just be ways that children were coping with drama. Mm. In an event as catastrophic as this, the human mind seeks to comfort, it seeks understanding, and it looks for hope. So for the children experiencing this storm, the concept of luminous beings protecting them from harm's way may have served as a coping mechanism. The idea of some kind of a supernatural guardian or force shielding them from horrifying reality around them right. uh, was kind of like, I don't know, like a mental refuge. I just think about all the things that you just referenced that those kids were, were hoping for, you know, hope and uh, safety and security and calm and love. And I feel like if I was in that situation, like what what would my thing be? It wouldn't be butterfly people, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Probably like the Queer Eye team. <laughs> like Jonathan Van Ness would come over and be like, oh, honey, no. <laughs> Let me help. <laughs> yeah, that begs the question, why butterflies? Mm. And I gave this some thought. When you think of butterflies, what do, to you, what do butterflies represent to you? Pollination. Besides pollination, transformation, that's what cocoons and right. caterpillars remind yeah. me of. Hope. Caterpillar spins a cocoon, undergoes a remarkable transformation. It, it emerges as a beautiful uh, butterfly. It's a creature that embodies change and rebirth, I guess, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Also, they, they eat shit ah, and, 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 and corpses. Like, they, they feed on carrion sometimes. So, so you're saying these were less angelic beings and just uh, <laughs> shit-eating hallucinations. They were just looking for the next snack. So as for explanations for these sightings, there are, they're varied and they're fascinating. Psychologists suggest a form of collective trauma response, yeah. which makes a lot of sense. The mind's method of making sense of incomprehensible disaster Others lean more toward the um, religious or spiritual viewing of these accounts, looking at them as manifestations of um, guardian angels or some sort of divine intervention. Me, I'm somewhere in between. I'm kind of like, uh, these are interdimensional beings who are tasked with protecting us. Now, you brought up <clears throat> Mothman yeah. earlier. Yeah. Uh, so do you think that these are related to Mothman somehow? Well, it's hard not to draw comparisons with Mothman. The infamous Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. They're both winged beings, and they both have been seen in small American towns. And there are some, some interesting similarities, but also some fascinating contrasts. And I did a deeper dive on this. Mothman sightings began in the mid-1960s and were often associated with disaster and doom, as you well know. This Mothman kind of freaks you out. No. It's one of the few things that's, that genuinely scares Cat. It's not true. Leeches. <laughs> Mothman 
is described as a humanoid creature with glowing red eyes and large moth-like wings. Mothman is often viewed as a harbinger of catastrophe. And of course, the most well-known association is with the collapse of the Silver Bridge in 1967, which tragically resulted in the deaths of 46 people. So I have a question. Um, what, what makes, why is Mothman a harbinger of death and these butterfly people are, you know, like angels? A big terrible thing happened there and they were all hanging out. They were there to comfort and protect. Mothman just shows up doesn't really say anything, and then bad shit starts to happen. The butterfly people are seen as not harbingers of disaster, but protective entities that emerge amidst the chaos. Mm. Um, the stories are not a foreboding, but protection, hope, and resilience. Mothman leaves a chill of fear. Butterfly people inspire a warmth of hope. Mm. So you think, till they start feeding on your corpse. <laughs> Mothman and butterfly people symbolize two very different responses to disaster. Mothman, with his haunting eyes and ominous all right. presence. We all know. With the glowing red eye That's standing enough. next to your bed when you wake up. Stop at it! You're just <laughs> making shit up now. <laughs> the butterfly people encapsulate the hope and courage that can bloom even in a big disaster like this. Mm. Yet despite the differences, both legends tap into our human fascination with the unexplained and our need to seek meaning in chaos and our capacity to weave an extraordinary narrative, especially in this case, from the threads of uh, our shared experiences, especially when they're disastrous like this one. Stories like the butterfly people of Joplin are not uncommon when it comes to stories of supernatural or unexplainable experiences during times of crisis. Now, you mentioned the third man factor. Mm. We, I covered that topic in an earlier episode. The term third factor, third man factor, which sounds like a game show, doesn't it? It sure does. It was coined by author John Geiger to describe the phenomenon where survivors of extreme situations like mountaineers or polar explorers report the presence of an unseen entity that provides comfort, guidance, or support, helping them to survive. Some notable examples included famed mountaineer Reinhold Messner, who reported the experience during a solo Everest ascent. And also Ron DeFrancesco, who was a survivor of the 9-11 attacks at the World Trade Center. Uh, he felt a guiding hand leading him out of the collapsing building. Another similar topic that I did in a previous episode was the tsunami ghosts of right. Japan. Yeah. After the devastating 2011 tsunami in Japan, many residents and taxi drivers in the affected areas reported seeing ghost passengers, apparitions of people who would often hail a taxi, climb in, start giving their destination, and then just vanish. Right. These experiences were so common that some academics conducted studies suggesting the phenomena may be a form of collective trauma response, but still unexplained. Well, wouldn't collective trauma response be the explanation? Stop trying to box me in. Okay, fine. I don't think I did an episode on this. The Angels of Mons. In the early days of World War I, British soldiers trapped and outnumbered by the German army in the uh, Belgian town of Mons reported seeing angelic warriors in the sky. These apparitions reportedly helped hold off the enemy and allowed the British to retreat successfully. So, I don't know, tsunami ghosts, yeah, maybe. Third man factor, yeah, maybe. Angels of Mons, eh. Butterfly people, hmm. But Mothman's real. You know, 
I'm not impressed with you right now. I got my information from the Columbia Daily Herald, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and the Joplin Globe. And also Malls who sent the email. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. And now, that thing in the middle. There's a remarkable statistic floating about that says the average American eats 35,000 cookies over a lifetime. Now, if you're anything like me and you hear this, you think, 35,000? Amateurs? But then I started wondering, Does this statistic account for Girl Scout cookie season? Because if so, I'm confident I exceeded my lifetime quota one dark, shameful winter. And what about cookie dough? Does that count? 
I mean, raw eggs, potential salmonella, it's practically an extreme sport. If it's not included in the statistic, I demand a recount. And don't even bring up Christmas between Kat's delicious snickerdoodles and those little Danish cookies that come in a can from TJ Maxx. That's another 5,000 cookies at least. To me, the question isn't why do we eat so many, but why do we count them? I have never met a single person who counted the sunsets they've enjoyed or the laughs that they've shared. Yet, when it comes to cookies, we get as meticulous as a Jackson Hewitt employee all hopped up on caffeine. I mean, if we're gonna get our waistbands in a twist, it'd be better spent on something that matters, like our apparent insatiable appetite for questionable reality TV shows. So here's a toast, with a milk-dunked chocolate chip cookie, of course to the 35,000 champions of our sugar-coated dreams. May we live long and always save room for just one more. We got an email from Nancy. Have you guys heard of this? An early social media influencer who defrauded hundreds? She then included a link to a story about Amanda C. Riley. I have heard of this. Yeah. We're not going to do an episode on it, but uh, we do know quite a bit about it. And we know somebody who is doing an entire series on it that you should check out. The, uh, the podcast is called Scamanda, and it's about Amanda C. Riley. She's in jail right now, longest federal prison sentence in history for soliciting donations for faking cancer. Charlie Webster, who is an award-winning journalist... She's great. We'll do such a better job of telling you about <laughs> scam Manda, scamanda, scamanda, than we will. Amanda scammed a whole community for over a decade. And Charlie tells you why. It's an unbelievable story. It's really bizarre, and it just totally ripped the family apart. It left their community bewildered <laughs> and uh, completely shocked. For sure. Scamanda reached the top 10 on Apple Podcasts and its first week of launch. It's so well made. It sounds so good. And you know, I can be really picky about what a podcast sounds like. Yeah, you're a picky little bitch. <laughs> Scamanda does it for me. Her case is one of a kind in IRS history. It's truly unique and bizarre. You should check it out. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Scamanda. We'll put the link in our show notes. You really should check it out. If you love the true crime, Charlie Webster will do a much better job telling you about this than we ever could. <laughs> Scamanda. 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 Everybody's talking about this podcast. It's so clever. We got an email from Nathaniel. Hey there, head freaks. How's it going? Just wanted to write you an email to share how much I love your podcast and how much it's helped me and how much I've been able to grow as a person because of it. I also have an idea for you, but I'll leave that till the end. Okay, well, noted. Anyhow, I discovered your podcast a few years ago and I've been addicted since. You actually featured me in an episode where you talked about listening minutes in Spotify Wrapped. I had an unhealthy amount, LOL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, didn't we figure it out? And it was like, it, in order to listen nonstop to all of the hours that he listened, it would take almost a month. Yeah, it was like two weeks or something like that. Crazy. It was crazy. The reason I listen so much is that your podcast gave me somewhere to go to escape abuse and pain in my life Aww. and taught me that it was okay to be different and that being a freak was a good thing. I'm now happily taken by a delightful boyfriend. I'm a proud furry. You need to do an episode clarifying the fandom, by the way. That would be really interesting. And most importantly, I've found value in my life and I'm no longer considering 
ending it oh. all thanks to your amazing podcast. Whew. Well, thanks, Nathaniel. Feel free, they write, to share any part of this you want. Hopefully, a little bit of my story might help other people continue theirs. Um, yeah, that's incredible, and thank you. And it's really, it's you guys that make this community amazing. And so I I never want to take credit for what Mm-mm. you all are. You right. are the, the, the freaks. You're the amazing ones. And we just put the tent up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you all came in. <laughs> Jim writes, hello, lovely people. Just listened to Box uh, 541 and the Australian feral camel problem. Reminded me of one of their other invasive species problems I heard about on Time Suck, uh, episode 232. And by the way, if you haven't checked out Dan Cummins' Time Suck, do so. Great podcast. Mm. It covers the emu war in Australia and the lengthy steps that they have taken and also failed at while trying to control the massive invasive emu population. It's another interesting story along with the laundry list of other major invasive species that they've had to contend with down under, including mice, rabbits, and cats. Keep up the good work. Jim, thanks, Jim. We got another message uh, regarding that exact thing, the, the emu invasion. And the email ended with, by the way, the emus are winning. <laughs> I don't know if I should be happy about that. Yeah, or... probably not. Also, getting a lot of great responses to our quest for new merch ideas. Lorita sent us an email. Hey, Kat and JG, heard you guys are designing merch, and I just think having something that says the Box of Oddities, it's like that lake and fringe would be neat. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I thought that was just kind of an inside joke between you and me. (laughs) Apparently, people are picking up on that, too. There's way too much inside stuff on this podcast. Also, I love that you're starting to disrobe. I am. It's very warm in here. (laughs) We're playing strip podcast production. Every time I mispronounce a name, I have to take an article of clothing off. So right now, yeah, I'm just in my shorts. Plus, it's hot. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This liner was about nine minutes long, till Cat and Jethro edited the living hell out of it. 
Fine, whatever. I don't edit their shit! This is the Box of Oddities. On my Jethro Gilligan Toth Facebook page, somebody gave me a 9.5 score mm -hmm. and said that they would have given me 10, but they're really angry that I don't play this enough. What you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? All right, fair enough. Um, I, I suppose you, that should get you a 10 now. I, I expect them to uh, correct their entry at this point. According to an act of 1666 from the immemorial, a firkin of butter weighed 64 pounds. A firkin? A firkin. That's a firkin lot of butter. It's a minimum of 56 pounds of butter with a barrel weighing 8 pounds. Okay. This is according to sizes.com. Joan Andrews of York, Maine, sold a firkin of butter with two heavy stones inside. Mm -mm. This was deceitful as the stones took up space that should have been filled with butter and weighed more than butter, making her a cheater cheater, never beater. When this morally repugnant act of deception was discovered, <laughs> her punishment was decided. She had to stand in the center of town, disgraced, bearing the description of her wicked cheatery, written in capital letters and pinned upon her forehead. Cheater. They pinned it to her forehead? To her forehead. Right in the skin? Unclear. Oof. That's not the point. The point is she was wearing a sign that said she was a cheater. All right. Shame as a punishment has been used throughout history in various cultures around the world. In ancient China, offenders would be paraded through streets with a sign detailing their crime. In medieval Europe, the stocks and pillory were used right. to publicly shame and humiliate. In some African cultures, social exclusion and ostracism were used to shame individuals who violated community norms. There are many examples and cultural variations of shame as punishment. However, it's worth noting that the use of shame as a punishment has become increasingly controversial in modern times, with some arguing that it can be counterproductive and harmful to the individual's mental and emotional well-being, especially in the case of children. It's not recommended. I remember as a kid, if you got caught chewing gum in class, the teacher would make you stick it on the end of your nose. Really? Yeah. That was also the same time period where if you were left-handed, you had to sit in the far right-hand row. They segregated lefties from the rest of us. What? Yeah. Why? Well, I think initially it was because they write with their left hand and, you know. Then the right-hand row would have been the wrong place to put them. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. It certainly doesn't. And they used to have to wear, use those little scissors with the green handles on them. You know what's interesting is I can't cut with my left hand. I can't use scissors with my left hand at all. You're, you kind of, you're, you fall in between. You're not technically ambidextrous, no. but you hit left-handed, you throw right-handed, <laughs> right? I'm semi-dextrous. You're a semi-dex. <laughs> Embrace it, girl. That's what Jonathan from Queer Eye would say. That being said, let's take a journey through some moments in time when shame was used as punishment in some very creative ways. Of course, you're familiar with the scarlet letter. Of course. The most common thing to wear was a large letter that stood for the wrongdoing done by the offender. Mm -hmm. If you were a thief, you would have a big T attached to your clothing. If you were a blasphemer, it would be a giant red B, and of course, an A for adulterer. 
This was actually something that was done. And if you were outside your home, if you were tootling about town, you had to be wearing this letter. They had some kind of an enforcement code in place where they could stop you and say, uh, show me your papers that say you don't have to wear your letter anymore. Uh, I don't know about the follow-up mm. on, on that. These are the questions that keep me up at night. I understand. The most common forms of shame as punishment, as I mentioned earlier, stocks and pillories. Uh, those convicted of crimes were held by their hands or feet. They were on display in a public place. This was actually a great learning opportunity for me because I always kind of used the term stocks and pillories interchangeably, and it's not the same. Wait. You used the terms stocks and pillories frequently enough to <laughs> make them interchangeable. Well, I always thought of, of stocks and pillories as being the same thing. Maybe mm. that's a better way to phrase it okay, okay. so that it doesn't appear as though I'm commonly using the terms stocks and You're constantly talking about all types of medieval shaming devices. Either way, I am now shamed because I thought they were the same thing. <laughs> and they're not. Uh, stocks... Hold your feet. Okay. Pillories hold your head and your hands. I didn't know that. Look okay. at us learning. We are. Love this podcast. In 16th century England, there was a real love-hate relationship with alcohol. According to Central European University, people in cities in the 16th century drank about 250 liters of beer per person per year. Wow. That is a single person consuming three quarters a liter every day. Most work at the time was hard, laborious work, mining and such. And at the end of a long, hard day, a dirty man liked to put his boots up and unwind. But <laughs> Parliament began looking for ways to regulate alcohol consumption across England, fearing the negative consequences of uncontrolled drunkenness. They took the first step by passing the Ale Houses Act of 1551, which established drunkenness as a civil offense. The Ale Houses Act of 1551 did use shame as a deterrent for drunkenness. Under the act, convicted drunkards might be fined or they were placed in the stocks or pillory for public humiliation. But there was another punishment used, usually for repeat offenders, the drunkard's cloak. The Drunkard's Cloak. Oh, I've heard of this. Have you? Yeah. The Drunkard's Cloak, also known as the Drunkard's Garment, was a barrel-shaped garment made of wood, metal, or wicker, which was placed over the head and shoulders of the offender. Essentially, it was a beer keg with holes for your head and legs, and sometimes your arms. In 1638, a man in Plymouth, Massachusetts, was punished by being forced to wear the Drunkard's Cloak for publicly being intoxicated. All right. 1657, a man in New Amsterdam, now New York City, was made to wear the drunkard's cloak for selling liquor on a Sunday. And in 1728, a woman in England was punished with the drunkard's cloak for being drunk and disorderly. This was during a time when there was a wave of punishments chosen that somehow matched or met the crime that was committed. So because you were drunk and disorderly, now you have to wear a beer keg. Wow. It was good fun for everyone. I mean, <laughs> except, except for the hungover guy in yep. the beer keg pants. Yep. Use of the drunkard's cloak quickly spread beyond England. In Germany, it was known as the Schandmantel, or the coat of shame. Hmm. And in Denmark, the form of punishment was called the Spanish mantle. And of course, it found its way across the sea to the States. 
Well, I guess at the time it wasn't the states. But anyway, there are examples of it being used as late as the American Civil War when it was occasionally used to punish soldiers. One wretched delinquent was gratuitously framed in oak, his head being thrust through a hole cut in one end of the barrel, and the poor fellow loafed about in the most disconsolate manner, looking for all the world like a half-hatched chicken. <laughs> well, they could turn a phrase they in that really day. They really could. Yeah. And back to Maine, in 1863, a volunteer infantry lieutenant put two members of his company, who had gotten drunk, in barrels with only one hole cut out for their heads as punishment. Mm. With a placard that read, I am wearing this for getting drunk. He ordered them to march through the town for four hours, though I don't know how they would have marched if their feet weren't stuck out of the bottom. Right, I was just going to ask you that. The source was very unclear about how that might have happened. At least it didn't say that they rolled them throughout the town. So that's something. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine that being hung over? It'd be pretty bad. And they put you in a barrel with your head sticking out and then tip you over and just roll you through the town for four hours? Like the blueberry girl from Willy Wonka. Exactly what I was thinking. I don't believe they'll be getting drunk again very soon, the lieutenant said. In 1629, the carousing, fun-loving colonist Thomas Morton had the terrible idea to erect a maypole. And, you know, maypoles were a fun thing. Mm. Not cool in colonial America because they hated fun (laughs) or anything that resembled it. He did it right under the noses of the pilgrims at Plymouth Colony. Miles Standish led a raiding party and arrested Morton and put him in the Bilbos. In the Bilbos? The Bilbos consist of a pair of U-shaped iron bars or shackles with holes at the ends. Your legs are inserted into the shackles and then a rod is strung through the the Mm. shackles so that you're kind of attached to this rod, this long stick. It looks incredibly uncomfortable. I've seen pictures of this. Yeah, it looks very painful. Sometimes the rod will be attached to something or woven through something. So like, let's say the maypole, Mm. they might put the rod on one side and you on the other and then kind of like weave your feet, you know, so you're kind of woven into the maypole. It just is uncomfortable. It's not a cool time for anyone. And your hands are attached to it too, right? I mean, it's... No, it's, just your feet. It's not, okay. I'm thinking of a different object of uh, humiliation then where it was a bar that the feet were attached mm-hmm. to, but the hands were also attached to it. And, okay. And maybe the, the bar went under the legs. I don't remember exactly. So but. there is a version of the Bilbo's that was used a lot in ships that were used to transport those who were enslaved. Mm. And I believe sometimes their hands were Mm. attached as well. So that may be kind of what you're... And and maybe that's also called the Bilbo's. Very, very uncomfortable looking device. Yeah, My arm falls asleep if I put it under my pillow for too long at night. One of the most humiliating parts of this whole process of being Bilbo'd in the middle of town is that often it was done while you were barefoot. Can you imagine... Imagine the humiliation of being barefoot in pilgrimy times. I can't imagine the humiliation of being bilboed in public. In 1639 in Salem, Mass., two men got drunk. 
And then they lied about it. They Oof. were like, no, no, we didn't get you know. They totally did, though. And they had to pay fines, but they also had to stand by the meeting house door with a paper on their hats that said, subscribed for gross premeditated lying. And then authorities put a cleft stick on their tongue. I don't like this. I don't like the sound of this at all. The cleft stick was a piece of wood that had one end split. And it was placed on your tongue with the split, mm, you know, like mm, this. Mm. So one side of the stick is here, mm. and the other side is stick is here. Mm-hmm. And then they were forced to stand out in a public place. So it was like a clothespin. Kind of. Oof. And yeah, it was not a comfortable thing, but it was more about the humiliation. Mm, mm-hmm. And oftentimes in these kinds of situations, a person would be placed in front of a meeting house or in front of a common area so that people would have to walk past them. It would be really ironic if you had to wear a sign saying that you had been a drunkard and they put you outside of a pub. It would also be a good deterrent, I would think, for others who were walking into that pub. Yeah, that's a good point. Beginning around 1800, a crucial semantic and political shift took place in Europe, and publicly administering shame sanctions were... <laughs> were you chuckling? Were you still thinking about the cleft tongue thing? No, no, just shame sanctions. Oh, it's fun to say. Mm-hmm. They were increasingly criticized by legal scholars and other intellectuals, and the practice is now considered humiliating because they violate basic civil rights of honor and dignity. Research shows that humiliation can have negative effects on self-esteem, mental health, and social relationships, and can even lead to increased aggression and worse behavior. Mm. It's generally recommended to use positive reinforcement and non-punitive approaches to encourage positive behavior. Again, especially when dealing with children. Harming a child's long-term mental health mm. is is not worth it. Well, I know when I worked in the corporate environment, environment in radio, whenever like the national vice president of programming would come to town, mm-hmm. if he was a dick and just kind of came in and embarrassed people and yelled at them, yeah. I didn't respond well to that. No. But when I worked with somebody that came in and offered encouraging words and said, you know, that's great, maybe we could try it like this and approach things like that, I was far more enthusiastic about my job. Of course. It makes so much more sense in every single way. I think that this, it's very short-sighted mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. govern in that way and to manage in that way. It's never a good idea. Do you remember one company that uh, we worked for and they had a, um, <laughs> and I was on the air, okay? I was, I was doing a radio morning show. Nobody can see me, mm-hmm. but they insisted that I wear pants that didn't have double stitching. Yes. And there was a rule. If you... If you wore pants with double stitching, they would announce it over the speaker and you had to put a quarter in the jar. Yeah. And so I came in one day with my jeans and uh, they said, oh, that's going to be 25 cents. And they get on the speaker and they're like, hey, he wore double stitch pants. Mm-hmm. And I grabbed the phone and I said, here's $5 for the next week. <laughs> They didn't like me. No. I also worked for that company and made an effort to follow the rules in the worst way possible. (laughs) Example. So lots of, um, so you were allowed to wear t-shirts as long as they were neat, Mm -hmm. crisp, 
clean, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Right. So I made a lot of T-shirts, you know, with like Sharpie and stuff that said like Lemmy rules. <laughs> and then I'd wear it with <laughs> with like a too small cardigan mm -hmm. and a long skirt, you know, sure, and just right. look absolutely ridiculous. But that was kind of my vibe at the time anyway. So I didn't mind. Once a month, they would have casual day. Yes, casual day. And every casual day, I rented a tux. <laughs> I was so, a little, a little oppositionally defiant. I so, think. Worth <laughs> yeah, so worth it. So worth it. And you look so nice in a tux. Thank you. You really do. I also look nice in double stitched pants. Of course you do. I appreciate that. Look nice without them too. Oh, oh, oh. Talking about your tushy. <laughs> Talking about your tushy. Anyway, I got my information from the aforementioned sources and all that's interesting. Psyche.co. Onslow County, New England Historical Society, and Curious Punishments of Bygone Days by Alice Earle. You didn't mention the bride's skull. I did not. I feel like that to me is more harmful than mm. just shameful. Yeah, it was meant initially to be shameful, but then they added like a little piece of metal in the bridal that uh, stuck into their tongues. Yeah. And it was a punishment for women who said things that men didn't like. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't as fun as I wanted. There were a couple that I came across that were like, okay, this kind of fits, but it's also a real bummer. <laughs> and so I did not include those. Understood. Any hoozle, thanks for hanging out with us, you guys. And uh, again, if you would like to support the podcast on Patreon, become a member of the Order of Freaks, or maybe even a member of the coveted Inner Circle, you get ad-free episodes, you get all kinds of free stuff, Zoom calls, Bonus episodes, which were overdue for one. Yes, this week. Yes, and so much more. Just go to theboxofoddities.com. The link is right there. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? 
Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.